Live from the KIJU studios in beautiful Ogasawara, this is the Monster Island Film Vault, episode 35, Prophecies of Nostradamus featuring John LeMay. Hello, Kaiju lovers, and welcome to the Monster Island Film Vault, a podcast seeking entertainment and enlightenment. Through Tokusatsu, I am your host, Nate Marchand, the curator of fantastic films here on Monster Island. But joining me today, because at this point, I can't do an episode alone anymore because people are dying to get on this show at this point. I have one of my favorite returning guests, everyone's favorite Tokusatsu scholar, except maybe Jimmy's, John LeMay. Welcome, John. Hey, Nate, it's good to be back. <laughs> this is really exciting. It's been like, what? It feels like, what, a year at this point? You a, know, you were here. A year, but yeah, two years in 2020 time. <laughs> yeah, just about, yeah. 2020 felt like a century at some points. <laughs> but yes, you were, last time you were here was for King Kong Lives because you unironically love that movie. You are one of, what, two people in the multiverse that love it? <laughs> Myself and Justin Mullis, he's the other one. He's yes. the other anomaly. <laughs> yes, you truly are. But that was actually one of the things that was exciting about having you on the show. Because I actually was able to find somebody who could come on and kind of defend the movie to a certain extent. But my gosh, dude, yeah. That was back before all of the madness of 2020 really kicked into high gear. So it just feels so long ago. <laughs> oh, come on, Jimmy. Are we going to bring this up again? Jimmy, just for everyone listening, is the reason I don't have a Twitter, so you can thank him for that. Yeah, which is simultaneously sad and incredibly smart of you, because I think you probably have better mental health than all of us, because you don't. Yeah. <laughs> you know, and at this point, I'm being monitored by the board. The board has their own Twitter now. But not only that... Oh, calm down, Jimmy. Ugh, all right. You gotta understand, Jimmy has developed a little bit of a habit of getting into conflicts, shall we say, with my guests. It's a habit I really hope he breaks. I mean, he literally got into a sword fight with my friend Joy Metter because they kept butting heads for two or three months when her and her husband Joe were coming to talk about the Daimajin movies. And then he literally got the snot kicked out of him by Daimajin and our buddy Jet Jaguar had to save him. It was amusing, but harrowing all at the same time. Anyway, barring any more flame warring between the two of you, <laughs> which, by the way, that was still the weirdest flame war I've ever seen because it was on two different social media platforms. It was kind of a hilarious at points. But anyway, barring that, I have you here today, John, to continue my mini-analysis series on some Toho classics. Today, we'll be looking at Prophecies of Nostradamus, although you told me before we went on the air that that's more or less the official English title. So the book it's based on is called Great Prophecies of Nostradamus, and that was the theatrical release title in August of 1974 from Toho. So again, that's Great Prophecies of Nostradamus. We'll talk a little bit later how it got recalled. And then once it was recalled, they changed the title internationally to Prophecies of Nostradamus Catastrophe 1999. Yeah. Because that that's actually when it's set. 
Yeah, which honestly, I've seen this movie twice. We watched it again today in preparation for the episode, and I don't remember them ever saying that the movie took place in 1999. So, you know, that was a little bit of a surprise for me while I was doing research on the movie. If you watch the English language version, Last Days of Planet Earth, it definitely doesn't say that. And in that case, I think they retrofitted it to take place in the 1980s, but probably in one of the Japanese dialogue translations, depending on what DVD you have, it might say it sent 1999. I can't remember. I think it's more implicit because they reference what has to be one of the more... Actually, it might be one of the best known of the Nostradamus prophecies where it talks about the great king of terror coming in the year 1999. The book you mentioned, by the way, I just wanted to let everybody know, was written by a guy named Sutomo Ben Goto. Because you generously donated a little uh, fanzine that you've been putting together. That's been one of your new projects over the last year. And you sent an issue that talked about this and Subversion of Japan and a bunch of other kind of disaster movies from Toho around this time that was then added to the Sekizawa Library Collection here on Monster Island. So I was actually referencing that, and that's how I found out about this. So thank you, John. <laughs> oh, you're welcome. Yeah. And also, just to let everybody know that you are in for a wild ride, and this is the funny thing. I honestly heard in some other podcasts and all of that that he wasn't as involved in this movie as people like to think he was, but according to you, and I'm defaulting on you because you're the scholar here, this screenplay, even though they do credit somebody else, but you know, you can tell us a little bit why there's another guy who has credit on this, but apparently most of this screenplay was written by Yoshimitsu Godzilla versus Hidora Bono. <laughs> That's exactly right. So I mean to really delve into the pre-production origins of this film. So, you know, Tomiyuki Tanaka, he could tell he was gonna have a have a hit in the form of submersion of Japan. He could just tell probably seeing the rough cuts and the early screenings he probably knew he wanted to follow it up with a similar type of film and you know submersion of japan based on a book so i think tanaka was looking for another type of book to adapt and at that time i'm trying to see when it came out let's see so great prophecies of nostradamus by sutomo bengoto was published in november of 1973 and uh, submersion came out very late december mm -hmm. december so, 29th yeah so yeah very late basically new year's eve so Tomoyuki Tanaka had already uh, optioned the Nostradamus book by sometime in mid-December of 73. So again, he didn't know Submersion was going to be a hit, but he probably suspected it. So he had optioned the film rights to the Nostradamus book. And the book, you know, is, from what I understand, the book is nonfiction. It's not like a, a novel with a narrative or characters. And it wouldn't be necessarily anything like the movie. I get the impression it was basically how Nostradamus's prophecies would have affected Japan or something like that. But makes sense. But to yeah, to finally get back to your question, Tomiyuki Tanaka gave the book to Yoshimitsubanu and just wanted him to give it a storyline. And so he basically instructed him to take the script for The Last War from 1961 and kind of take that general outline and just cram all of Nostradamus's prophecies into that. And then, of course, Bano being Bano, you know, he gave it an environmental theme. So, yes, he did. <laughs> so a lot of, yeah, so a lot of the disasters were caused due to the environment. So mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. that's that's the developmental process. Yeah, and the reason why there's another name attached to the script is because it was the scriptwriter for The Last War, whose uh, his name unfortunately escapes me. <laughs> 
I think it's Toshio Yasumi. That sounds about right. Yeah. yeah, you know, Jimmy can correct us in his blog. So he better not. Oh, calm down. I get it. It's part of your job. All right. Again, no flame warring. Anyway, but I find that interesting. Bono also worked on the movie as well. I think it was he like an assistant director of some kind, I think, because he didn't have full directorial credit. A lot. That's a little bit of a misnomer about this movie. People thought that it was his movie, and it wasn't quite. This did have another director. Yeah, the director for sure was Toshio Masuda, but I think Bano held a lot of power and sway on this movie, oddly enough. But what I know for sure that Bano did shoot was he shot the big second unit sequences in New Guinea, the on-location stuff. Ah, of like yeah of the natives in the airport and all that and then of course the special effects scenes and them trekking through the jungle would have been shot back at the studio probably under masuda that makes sense that's about what i heard so he had a lot of involvement with this just he didn't hold the positions that i think a lot of people thought he did but in a lot of ways when you watch this it is very much if you're familiar with godzilla versus hetera this is very much a bono movie <laughs> and one more opening statement that i'll make about this when we watched it for the podcast, this was the second time I had seen it. And honestly, the second time around, I found myself... Because initially, my reaction to it when the first time was, this is both weirder and not as weird as people made it sound. My second time watching it, my reaction was, you know what? This is really weird. <laughs> but it might be because I'm fresh off of watching and podcasting about Submersion of Japan, <laughs> which is incredibly good and like we mentioned this movie was meant to follow the trend that was going on at the time because toho was realizing that their money makers were not things like godzilla films they were disaster movies and they wanted to keep capitalizing on this which is why this one got made and this is very different <laughs> from prophecies of japan thematically and tonally and you know, it's just so much is different it's yeah. almost hard to describe how different this movie is compared to something like Submersion. I was going to say, I think seeing Submersion first, but just because it's such a masterpiece and it's a little more streamlined, I think that's probably kind of what ruined Nostradamus for you. Whereas I, on the other hand, I saw the old Last Days of Planet Earth VHS. I can't remember how old I was, probably in my late teens or 20s or something. Then I saw the Japanese version, and then I think I saw Submersion after that which I think really helped because Nostradamus tone it, it's as a movie, it's a little more episodic and there's just all these different elements, you know, like what does it have? Cannibals, zombies, mutants, uh, nuclear disaster. It's got everything in it, you know, whereas yeah. submersion is just about earthquakes more or less, but yeah, earthquakes, tidal waves and the seismic activity and the, everything that goes along with it, which is astonishing because that movie is what it's a good, I think, 30, 35 minutes longer than Prophecies, but yeah. Prophecies does feel more disjointed by comparison to that movie, which is saying something. But we'll get into that the, a little bit more later on, talking about how this movie ended up getting banned, which is ironic because I found out from reading all of your research that this was Toho's biggest hit of 1974. Yeah. <laughs> which is crazy to think that they have basically buried one of their biggest hits and we'll get into why and there's so much interesting stuff that happens outside of the movie itself 
But we talked a bit about the Goto book. But one of the things I wanted to go into a little bit, and we had, a, I think, a little bit of a miscommunication before Jimmy got you over here today, because I said, I'm going to do research on the book, and I'm guessing you thought I was talking about <laughs> the Goto book. And then when you got here, I said, no, actually, I was looking into the actual Prophecies of Nostradamus book. <laughs> Yeah, I wasn't sure, but yeah, I'm glad because I'm not real familiar with either one of them. So I'm interested to hear what you have to say. Yeah, well, I looked up a lot of stuff on it. I even managed to snag a couple different editions because there's been multiple editions of this book of prophecies that have been published over the years. I've looked at three different translations of it. There's been multiple translations as well, which one of the things I'm going to say right off the bat was this was all originally written in kind of like Latinized French. And these things do not have a very good reputation for being translated well. They're usually said to have been translated rather sloppily, which explains why there's multiple translations. And sometimes the translations say really different things, or some translations are weirdly more specific than you would think would actually be possible. <laughs> <laughs> because there's been such fascination with these things. Basically what these are was they were quatrains, which are four-line poems that had to do with the future. You probably remember this from watching the movie, you know, how that, because there would be narration that would quote these things. So they would have a narrator come up and say like, Century One, Prophecy 69, you know, things like that. Yeah. Well, that's actually... Kind of like, you know how with the Bible they have chapter and verse, so you know you have a quick reference point where you define stuff? So century and prophecy, or quatrain. Sometimes they say quatrain. So the reason they say century is they don't mean a time span of 100 years. They mean that it's 100 quatrains. So there's 10 of these centuries with 100 quatrains in each one that are compiled into this book that makes up the prophecies of Nostradamus. So basically, it's 1,000 quatrains that have to do with the future. Does that make sense? Yeah, and uh, I'm actually really curious, too. Um, you know, we were talking about the King of Terror prophecy. Like, I'm trying to think at which point in the movie do you think represents that? Do you think it's the jet that, like, explodes over the ozone layer and tears a hole in it? Do you think that was supposed to be the King of Terror? What, what do you think? I'm not entirely sure. That one seems to be the one that would make the most sense. Or were they talking about it was something that had yet to happen? I'm trying to remember. It's such a trippy movie. <laughs> it's hard to keep everything straight. Because I don't remember if they were talking about it in reference to something that was yet to come or if that was in reference to the jet. I'm not entirely sure. Yeah. Either way, they do address it in the Unmade sequel, which we can talk about yeah. a little bit later. Yeah, but we'll I, its subtitle, that. yeah, kind of like was something along the lines of King of Terror or something yeah. like that. But interestingly, and I mentioned this when I did my Rebirth of Mothra 3 episode with Bex from Redeemed Otaku, they went with... King Ghidorah, if I remember correctly, because of that particular Nostradamus passage about the King of Terror. And I guess yeah. there was an earlier version of the script for that movie that would have made more direct connections between the two. And that's not the only place where that passage has been applied to King Ghidorah, but that's an episode for another day. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> but basically, this is what I found. But the prophecies were first published in the U.S. in 1942 as the Oracles of Nostradamus by Random House. The publishing house's president, Bennett Cerf, said he did so tongue-in-cheek, which I think is a little funny. However, Nostradamus became ubiquitous and was seen everywhere. 
Only five other modern library titles outsold the Nostradamus book that year, including Mogham's Of Human Bondage and Dostoevsky's Crime and Punishment. So it took major literary classics to outsell this thing. <laughs> so who is Nostradamus? Well, his full name is Miguel de Nostradame. That's how you would say it in the French, which I'm probably saying wrong, despite the fact that I have a French surname. I've also seen it translated as simply Michael Nostradamus. He was born December 14th in 1503. He died in 1566. He was of Jewish descent, and the prophecies that we're talking about were published in 1555 in Lyon and they were deemed unfit for inclusion in any canon by both the secular and the religious. Uh, Stefan Gerson, I hope I'm saying that right, he's something of a scholar of Nostradamus, called this book a, quote, mix of astrology, prophecy, melancholy poetry, magic, and history, end quote. Might be a little generous there. Nostradamus himself was French and Catholic. He was both an insider and an outsider. His family was middling merchants. He attended medical school, but he challenged his teacher, so he was actually a medical doctor. He oh, was wow. yeah. He was invited to the court by the French queen Catherine de Medicis. My apologies to my French listeners, but he never became a courtier. He gained fame in the 1530s as a plague doctor based on his diagnoses. Because like most Renaissance doctors, he based them on bodily humors and on the stars. So he was an astrologist, which he thought governed bodily functions and mirrored character traits. He was known for curing the incurable. But interestingly, he refused to do things that were common practice in the medical field at the time, like bloodletting. We know that bloodletting is not an effective medical treatment now, and he back then wouldn't do it. However, the plague struck his family and killed his first wife and his young child. He then started calculating horoscopes that told the truth and weren't entirely favorable because he believed the worst blows could be parried, as Gerson puts it. Hardship for Nostradamus was unavoidable, but he offered hope. Moderation and perseverance were his prescriptions. In 1550, he started publishing almanacs based on astrology in which he predicted world events. These made him popular with readers as printers and publishers sought to publish such materials at the time. These included four-line predictive poems called portents, or quatrains, which is a four-line poem, essentially. When the last edition of the book was published in 1568, two years after he died, it contained 942 quatrains and two prefaces, the latter making some wonder if Nostradamus intended to write more. He never gave himself the title of prophet and claimed no human being could comprehend the mysteries of God. Even so, Gerson writes, quote, Nostradamus combined facets of the Jewish prophet who brought together past, present, and future, the Christian prophet who could accomplish nothing without divine power, and the melancholy Aristotelian prophet who could connect with the soul of the world, end quote. He did dabble in white magic to write these, I'm, I should note, though. The often apocalyptic nature of Nostradamus' prophecies played into Europeans' fears at the time as the Protestant Reformation went on and Rome was sacked by the Ottoman Empire in 1527. The book only mentions nine dates, ranging from 1588 to, no joke, John, the year 3797. 
<laughs> so apparently wow. we have some more to look forward to. <laughs> <laughs> wow. And is written in cycles. Some have connected them to the end of the world or to the end of a world. He said he couldn't distinguish the past from the future and vice versa, which seems a little convenient to me. He sometimes uses present tense or no verbs at all in his prophecies. Gerson argues that anxiety isolates people, but fear draws them together, and Nostradamus's words made fear palatable. Okay. <laughs> I guess that explains why that might have been a little bit popular in Japan, because they're a very communal society, perhaps. Mm, yeah, good point. Since this book wasn't part of a canon, competing publishers would add to them, including 58 new predictions in 1605, and reframe them as they saw fit since there were no gatekeepers. However, Nostradamus' work was savagely criticized and denounced until the 20th century. And hopefully I say this name correctly, a guy named Peter Lemassurier again, apologies for my pronunciation, argues that Nostradamus believed, quote, history repeats itself, end quote, and was simply able to project past events onto the future. In other words, he made educated guesses. Others have said that the translations people use of Nostradamus's work are sloppy and unreliable, and I can attest to this because I saw discrepancies with several of the, because I looked at three different translations, and I saw discrepancies between all of them. Henry C. Roberts, who was a noted scholar of Nostradamus, argued in the 1946 edition of the book that prophecy does not apply in the literal sense to all of these quatrains because they refer to events during and before Nostradamus's time. Okay, then. Nostradamus's predictions have been applied to several historical events, John, including the 1559 death of French King Henry II, the Great London Fire of 1666, the French Revolution, the rise of Napoleon Bonaparte, the discoveries of Louis Pasteur. So for those who don't know, that's the guy who invented pasteurization. So when we talk about pasteurizing milk, he figured it out. The leadership of Charles de Gaulle, he was a French leader, and the JFK assassination, of course, because Anything and everything conspiratorial applies to the JFK assassination at this point. Yeah. <laughs> oh, don't give me that BS, Jimmy. There's no way you know who actually did it. Just be quiet about that. But now, John, there's a few other important events that these prophecies have been applied to, and I'm going to read the associated passages for it, and we can kind of talk about it a little bit, see if any of these seem like they apply to what it's actually talking about. So, one of the popular ones that people reference is they insist that Nostradamus, as you would expect, predicted the rise of Adolf Hitler. And one of the go-to passages that they bring up is from Century 3, Prophecy 35, saying it like they do in the movie. So, in this one, it says, At Europe's farthermost western reaches, to poor folk a small infant shall be born, he shall seduce great crowds with his speeches, his great fame spreading to Orient shores. What do you make of that one? <laughs> I've always felt he was pretty spot on when it came to Hitler. Well, the one problem with that particular passage is that Hitler wasn't born into a poor family. They were middle class. <laughs> they were middle class oh. merchants. So that's one of the errors that people point out about that one. And then there's another one that's from Century 4, Prophecy 68. 
not far away from Venus some year soon. Asia's and Africa's two great hosts shall meet those from the Rhine and the Danube, shrieks, tears on Malta, Ligurian coast. Now, this translation does it a bit differently. There are some translations of this particular one that don't say the Danube. They say the Ister or the Hister. And some people think that it's a misspelling of the name Hitler. What it actually is, is that those two words are French word referring to the Danube River. So some people apply that one because they're just a little bit confused about it, I would say. I just want to know, does Jimmy get triggered whenever you say the word Venus? <laughs> <laughs> oh, not really? I'm surprised. Why is that, Jimmy? Oh, really? You're going to be writing a chapter in your autobiography about how you fixed Venus. Okay, then. Moving on. Another one, and this is relevant for historical reasons and for the listeners of this podcast, there are people who think that Nostradamus also predicted the atomic bombings. And here's the passage that they use for that. It's from Century 2, Prophecy 6. Nearby the gates and within two cities, two scourges shall strike, such as never seen. Famine, plague within, folk cast out by sword, cry to the immortal Lord for relief. Now, I will admit, on the surface, that does seem to make sense. The problem is that that prophecy, from what I was doing with my research, has also been applied to the Berlin Wall and the Serbian War in the 90s. Hmm. Okay. Then, as you would expect, seems like whenever some major world event happens, these prophecies get applied to it. The 9-11 terror attacks, which is from Century 1, Prophecy 87. Now, this one has a crazy French name in it, and I'll uh, try my best not to butcher it when we start. But it says, Enosagaeus, the fire at Earth's core, shall set the new city all aquake. Two lords shall go on fighting feudal wars. New stream makes Arethusa blush with shame. Thing is, there was another translation of this that didn't say two lords. It said two rocks, which is why people thought it was a reference to the Twin Towers. Problem is that this was also in an older edition of the prophecies that I saw was applied to the first World Trade Center bombing in the 90s and also to just conflicts between Western powers and rogue nations. Mm -hmm. So the thing about these prophecies, near as I can tell, is that they're so cryptic that you could, with some mental gymnastics, you could apply them to just about anything. Interestingly, there was a meme that got passed around. We were talking about the ridiculousness that was 2020. About this time last year, there was a meme that got passed around that claimed Nostradamus predicted the COVID pandemic. That was quickly refuted. However, I did read an article with this guy who did cite a passage from Nostradamus that seemed like you could apply it. It's from Century 2, Prophecy 65. that said, Arctic Pole shall provoke calamities throughout Hesperia and, uh, and in Subria. Lightning striking ships, plague and captivity, Mercury in Sag, Saturn at his scythe. So because it says plague and captivity... They're thinking, oh, it's COVID and quarantine. Mm. Okay. <laughs> but just to let everybody know, if you're sitting here thinking, well, okay, maybe he was right. This is kind of interesting. Well, then I need to warn you, if you really want to take these seriously, Nostradamus also predicted the zombie apocalypse. So here you go. 
Century 10 Prophecy 74. The mighty number seven, its course run, shall appear at the games of the Hecatomb, not that far from the great millennium, when the buried shall rise from their tombs. Have fun with that. <laughs> and I've also what do you seen, think? I've you also, think maybe that's going to be this year or next year? Uh, what I was reading, people were thinking it was the year 2000 and 2007. So apparently we missed the zombie apocalypse. I don't know if I should be disappointed or not. That's a good question, Jimmy. I don't remember offhand when The Walking Dead started. Oh, that's true. He could have looked into the future and he didn't realize he was just watching TV. There you go. That's a good point. That is a very good point. Or maybe the comic book. Yeah. There's a little something for you to look up, Jimmy, because I don't know offhand. Look up when The Walking Dead comic and TV show started. Maybe we can just say, hey, Nostradamus was just reading comics or watching TV. Who knows? But with all of that in mind, let's get into the movie itself. <laughs> now that yeah, gotten... none of those prophecies really relate to the movie is the funny thing. Well, Would other you agree? than, well, at least the ones that I read, other than maybe the zombie apocalypse one, because we have zombies sort of in this. <laughs> yeah, not very many. But there's a few. Yeah, a few. But this is, like we talked about, this movie is strangely episodic. It spans a bit of time because it actually starts in 1863 and shows a character named, was it Gento? What I have in my notes. I believe Ginzo or Gento. I, I'm not sure. Yeah. And he's obsessed with Nostradamus and he's claiming that great change is coming to Japan and that black ships are coming, which was an actual historical event. And him and his family basically become outcasts because of that. Then it jumps to world war two and it has this other guy who's being interrogated as I guess as a POW, we're not really given a whole lot of context for that scene. Well, if I'm not mistaken, I think it's it's supposed to be he's General Nishiyama, and I believe he's in the Japanese army, but he's being reprimanded for his beliefs because I think he's trying to tell Japan they shouldn't get in bed with Hitler because according to Nostradamus's prophecies, that's going to end badly. That was my interpretation. Of, okay, of that actually scene. makes sense, but like a lot of things with this movie, it's a little confusing at points. <laughs> yeah. But I think the implication is that he's supposed to be a, I guess a descendant of Genzo, Gento, and yeah, so, he's continued yeah. with this hardline belief in the prophecies of Nostradamus because, yeah, he's telling this officer who's interrogating him that Japan's going to pay a ridiculous price for their involvement in the war. Yeah, and I believe all three, there's three Nishiyamas in the movie, and they're all three played by uh, Tetsuro Tamba, I'm pretty sure. Oh, yeah, the same actor. That's interesting. I didn't notice that. Yeah. So we get these little vignettes, these uh, period piece vignettes. And then we have an opening credit sequence that's showing a bunch of world events, things like wars, Vietnam, the moon landing, and all of this stuff. And there's a narration going on while the credits are rolling that is quoting different quatrains from Nostradamus. And I did make notes of all of them. I'm not going to read all of those passages, obviously. Although I will say I did reference, not all of them, but I referenced some of them just to see how the movie was handling them. And depending on the translation, you know, they more or less communicated them. They didn't always quote the entirety of every quatrain. And some of them honestly felt a little bit longer than a quatrain. <laughs> but yeah. So they may have been taking some creative license. I'm not sure. That might be something for Jimmy to look into for his follow-up blog to this episode. So there's all of this stuff, and I honestly found myself, as the movie was progressing, in which we've talked about this a bit already, 
The movie has a very heavy environmental message. Thank you, Bono. And I don't know. Do you think that the movie made enough connections between these Nostradamus prophecies and its big focus on these environmental disasters? No, I don't. I think that was all Bano. My feeling is that it didn't really draw enough parallels between the prophecies and the environment. Yeah, because honestly, I mean, the title makes you think that the big focus is going to be on these Nostradamus prophecies. And one of the things that I was reflecting on watching it was we mentioned at the beginning that this movie is very different tonally from, say, Submersion of Japan. One of the things that I found differently, and this is also in keeping with The Last War, because I was noticing a lot of Last War parallels, which was intentional, obviously. But one of the things that this movie doesn't have that I feel like that Submersion in Last War has is that there's a lot more emotional impact from what is going on. And Submersion in particular, and Last War as well, has this very potent sense of oncoming dread. Whereas when I'm watching Prophecies of Nostradamus, it just feels like a lot of melodrama. <laughs> and even almost a weird hankering to show a lot of death, suffering, and destruction to kind of hammer its environmental message at you. <laughs> and it didn't have the emotional impact that I think the movie wanted to have. Does that make sense? I agree with that. And what's more, too, is the ending doesn't have any consequences because the ending isn't, it's not a dream scene, but it's its kind of like a simulation. A lot of what we see in the last five minutes doesn't actually happen, which you could call a cheat, I suppose. Yeah, because basically we have our main character. I think it's a Tamura was his name. Is that correct? I think it's Tamura. Well, Dr. Nishiyama. I, I don't remember yeah. Dr. Nishiyama's first name, but... Yeah, but Nishiyama, Are you talking about the younger guy? The main scientist that we are following throughout the film. Yeah, the main scientist for sure is Dr. Uh, Nishiyama. And then let's see. Yeah, that's it's yeah, Dr. His first name is Ryo, Ryojin Nishiyama. Okay, so he's giving a speech to a bunch of Japanese leaders at the end saying all of these horrible things could happen. And then we start seeing all of these horrible things happen, including apparently the most controversial scene in the entire movie, which we'll get to. And none of it's real. So we get all of these spectacular tokusatsu sequences. And then at the end, he says, but this is all stuff that could happen. Well, hold on a second. <laughs> none of that actually happened. Yeah. <laughs> so we had all of these other terrible, weird things happen throughout this movie, but these didn't. Which honestly yeah, just that adds is irony that to is the a fact. Weird thing. Yeah, which just adds irony to the fact that it was one of those scenes that got the movie banned. <laughs> so yeah <laughs> it doesn't even actually happen it's just bizarre so there wasn't this sense of a singular moment of destruction coming submersion of japan had that the last war had that this movie is just a bunch of vignettes of weird destructive often horrific things happening like there's a scene that we mentioned earlier about this plane that crashes and makes a hole in the ozone layer i'm not quite sure the science of that but it makes a hole in the ozone layer so it's these sun rays are coming in and they're setting things on fire and burning people to death and it has the audacity to show us an entire young japanese family basically get roasted by the sun it's horrifying well, Nathan, to watch. Did, did you notice though that that family is the same one who goes to see dr nishiyama early in the movie and the daughter's having trouble so he advises them to move out into the country oh my gosh so that's the same family <laughs> oh my gosh that's interesting i know they did a few yeah. things like that there are callbacks there's a through line in this movie but it still feels really episodic 
But other than in the end when they're saying like, okay, there's going to be a nuclear war and terrible things are going to happen. It's more just a, these are things that could happen. In fact, the movie even ends a lot like The Last War, where it has this little, I don't know, not disclaimer, but this little moral that pops up at the end that says, hey, this could happen, but we can make sure it doesn't. So it tries to end on a hopeful note. I didn't like it when they end on the hopeful notes. I kind of wish they would have just left them as they were and let them have that more impactful downer of an ending. Yeah, that's honestly what I would have thought they would have done. I mean, Submersion of Japan ends on a pretty melancholy note. The Last War really has a downer of an ending, but there was purpose for that. It's just so weird. Like I said, that's the best way I could think of to describe this. The first time I saw this movie, I thought, okay, this is weirder and yet not as weird as people make it sound. This time around, I'm like, this really is weird. (laughs) But again, coming off of submersion, I guess that's to be expected. But I will admit, throughout the movie, there were a few things that, I mean, given that we're watching a movie that is trying to apply prophecies, there were a few things in this movie, I will admit, I'm like, I feel like I'm seeing current events play out right here. Like that scene early on where the kids are all wearing face masks. Oh, yeah, and then there's the food shortage riots where they try yes. to ration out the food. People rebel. and Yeah, that was a little too ripped from the headlines for me. <laughs> so that was crazy enough. But honestly, one of the freakiest ones, though, if we're going to talk about predicting the future, there's a whole tokusatsu sequence where the Fukushima power plant explodes. Yeah, that was Bano's idea. He was really fixated on the Fukushima nuclear plant. Yeah, as you said, that really happened. It was sometimes post-2000, right? Uh, 2011. uh, Yeah. So, uh, yeah. And Dr. Nishi, what is it, Nishikawa? Nishiyama. Nishiyama. Yeah. Uh, Dr. Nishiyama even says, no plant is safe from earthquakes which has become an issue since 2011 in Japan after the real-life Fukushima nuclear disaster. Again, it's almost like he knew. (laughs) Yeah, uh, and then he also wanted to do another Hydra, either a Hydra remake or a sequel. After that 2011 event, he really wanted to do that. I think that was kind of one of the things that played into the Godzilla 3D to the Max IMAX movie he was doing. When that was done away with, he wanted to do just a a Hedorah movie by itself, where somehow the Fukushima disaster created another Hydra or something like that. That's really interesting. (laughs) It could be, again, kind of like with Nostradamus, where people are saying he was just really smart and knew his history and could kind of project things out. So maybe he just did the same thing here, but... Again, you could get freaky about it and (laughs) say he knew what was coming and he was trying to let people know. I don't know. Fun fact, you know how there's a scene where when the family's having dinner and they talk about AF2, which was a food preservative that was making people sick so they stopped using it? That was real. AF2 is another term for, I'm probably saying this wrong, feril furamide, and it was used as a preservative starting about 1965 in Japan and was discontinued in 1974, the year this movie was put out, because it caused cancer. So another real event was the Minamata disaster where uh, people were uh, poisoned by some chemicals that leaked into the drinking water. And Bano, you know, made it really different. He made it to where when the kids drank the water, they kind of developed superpowers. That was weird because they said, oh, they get superpowers and then they die. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) So uplifting. (laughs) 
And yeah. then to, to go back just for some more fun trivia, we're talking about filming the special effects scenes. And I, I understand you had some developments on the island with Mogera recently, but during filming of one of their uh, effects sequences, the fire really got out of control and burned down the entire Toho Studio number seven. Yes. And one of the things that got destroyed in that fire was the Mogera suit from Mysterians. Yep. You didn't burn yours, did you, Jimmy? <laughs> nope. I got to ride in that thing. And you still need to finish installing all the parts. I'm just saying. Hmm. But yeah, that is really interesting. It was the same soundstage, or at least close by, as the soundstage used for Mysterians. But we're talking about the parallels between some of these other movies. And I wonder how much of this was being done because they were trying to follow in the footsteps of, say, Submersion of Japan. But you know, we have a few scenes that are like Submersion of Japan, where there are these conference scenes where they're going over a bunch of scientific data, a lot like in Submersion of Japan. It's a lot less technical, I will admit. There's a lot of numbers and illustrations and things in Submersion of Japan that we don't quite have here. It's more just an opportunity for Nishiyama to, well, rant. <laughs> <laughs> yeah <laughs> about oncoming environmental disasters it's almost comical to be honest <laughs> then obviously we have a lot of the family drama it's a lot like the last war although in some ways it's kind of the inverse of it because in this case the dad actually does think that horrible things are about to happen whereas frankie sakai in the last war was the consummate optimist that didn't think anything terrible was going to happen. Even when the war is coming to Japan, he's still refusing to buy into hopelessness. Whereas in this case, the dad says, oh, terrible things are about to happen, but you, daughter, should go start a family anyway. <laughs> yeah, you made me just suddenly realize something about how this is the 70s equivalent to that family unit because... Okay, back in the 60s when The Last War was made, it was more fashionable to have a male character who was in the military and who was a soldier, which was Akira Takarada as Takano. Now, this movie, the male equivalent of Takano, he's not a soldier. He's a reporter, specifically like a, a photographer mm -hmm. for the media. It's uh, Toshio Kurosawa's character. So I think it's kind of interesting that Bano switched him from a soldier to a reporter in a time when the military was now less popular. And then also the relationship between the daughter and the male lead, you know, in the, the last war, they get married right before he ships off and mm -hmm. the tragedy happens. But here, you know, in the seventies, she's pregnant with a baby and they're not married yet, which yeah. I'm just noticing the interesting uh, that, changes that Nano made. Mm -hmm. And that scene actually made me think of a scene in Submersion of Japan when Onodera and his girlfriend <laughs> that he just met. <laughs> yeah have a nice little romantic scene on the beach and in this one thankfully <laughs> their consummation doesn't get interrupted by a volcanic eruption which is how she gets yeah. <laughs> but they make love in a boat and then they have to deal with that and i actually appreciate the later on we see the mom and her mom dies i believe it is her mother yeah. And she's telling her, yeah, it looks like terrible things are going to happen, but you know, you need to have the baby and I can live on in the baby kind of implying reincarnation. But I don't know if that's necessarily what she's talking about. I think she's talking about more like you're going to continue the family legacy. And then we have this scene that I think is both wonderful and weird where we get to the end when she tells the boyfriend we're going to have a baby and she goes running off and does a dance number. Oh, Nate, I have to tell you, because you told me you haven't seen the American edit of this film, which is called Last Days of Planet Earth. 
so you have to understand that was the first time I saw this movie in that cut. Yeah. And uh, actually that edit, it ends the scene with her running away from him. And that's how that scene ends. You don't see her do the dance. So you really get the impression that they're breaking up and she's literally running away from him in Last Days of Planet Earth, which is not the case when I saw the full Japanese version later and she does that beautiful dance. Unfortunately, that scene is totally removed from the U.S. edit of the film. That's awful. Yeah, and again, you think that their love story ends in a bad way. You think that they broke up and she ran away. The way they edited it, it's got a really negative connotation. But in the Japanese cut, it's kind of a little more playful and exuberant. But you do not get that impression in the U.S. edit. Yeah, it's interesting because she does that. It seems weird, but then I realize what she's doing is she's celebrating life. She's celebrating that she's going to have a baby and her mother's legacy is going to live on. It just seems to kind of come out of nowhere. It's weirdly artsy and bright and hopeful compared to the rest of the movie, which is kind of dreary (laughs) and horrific at points. So it's a little bit strange, but I love it. But I'm admittedly a sucker for stuff like that because I'm a ballroom dancer myself. And reading your magazine, I found out that that actress was a very talented dancer herself. (laughs) And unfortunately, I'm a sucker for dancers. I just am. (laughs) Oh, shut up, Jimmy. So we mentioned how this is a very environmental movie because of Yoshimitsu Bano. How do you feel like this movie handled that theme compared to, say, Godzilla versus Hedera? For me personally, I feel like even though this is hammering its point into your head, much like uh, Godzilla Godzilla versus Hedera, there's a weird charm, I feel like, to how Hedera handles it. But with this one, it feels preachy. Yeah, I I totally agree with that. I I feel like Hedera handled that a lot better. To me, it got the point across more so because you see all the sludge in the water and you can kind of imagine how somehow it would create a monster or something like that. I don't think the point is hammered home as skillfully in Prophecies of Nostradamus. Which is interesting, considering that it was the same guy. I don't know. Maybe something got lost because he wrote it, but it was handled by another director. Maybe something got lost in the process, possibly. Whereas Bono had complete creative control, basically, of Hedera. I don't know. No, I think that sounds like a valid point. The thing is, is it's not just the environmental message that this has in common with Godzilla versus Hedera. We also get the impression yet again that uh, Bono doesn't seem to care much for Japanese counterculture because we have more Japanese hippies in this, just like in Godzilla vs. Hedera. And they're not portrayed very positively at all. Now, they don't appear as much in this movie, but they're shown to be fatalistic, even kind of nihilistic and suicidal. They're doing things like proclaiming that everyone's going to die or they start this weird movement where all the Japanese youth are getting on boats that have no food or water and just going off into the ocean and just staying out there until they die. It's like if Submersion of Japan decided to be a melodrama. (laughs) Yeah. Because that seems like a thing that would happen. It's weirdly Japanese, but a lot more fatalistic than I would expect. And then there's the weird scene with the motorcyclists and they just drive off a cliff. Yeah, it doesn't look like it would kill them because, I mean, those are obviously real stunt performers just jumping into the water. So it's like, do they choose to like not swim after that and just drown or something? Maybe that's the idea, but it didn't look like a real fatal fall. But still, like the whole thing is just, like I said, it's just really strange. So, John, we've mentioned how strange this movie is. 
it's much more ethereal and otherworldly. Heck, even the soundtrack for that really creates this otherworldly atmosphere in it, which is a far cry from Submersion of Japan. So what was the most effective or haunting scene in the movie for you? Yeah, easily the most haunting scene that really got to me was basically one of the reasons that it's banned is during that dream scene at the end or simulation, whatever you want to call it, the earth gets ravaged by nuclear war and there's no real survivors to speak of. And what survivors there are are these mutated humans. I believe the official name for them is soft-bodied humans. I'm not sure why they call them that. Do you know why they call them soft-bodied humans? I've always wondered. I couldn't find anything that explained that. I'm guessing it's a translation of the Japanese. That might be right. something for Jimmy to look into. Although it would make, yeah. I guess, make some sort of sense because they look very fragile, to say the least. Yeah, they have very, like, really spindly arms, but big stomachs and, and kind of yep. misshapen heads. Loaded stomachs. And I found out that they were designed by Toro Norita, who designed the Gargantuas. I'm not surprised. Yeah, well, that's what I read. And then Jules Carosa just told me the real designer. So I might look that up for us before oh. Jimmy can. Let well, be a glory hound. And uh, yeah, but we'll, we'll circle back to who Jules told me the real designer was. But yeah, so the sequence, though, is really disturbing, even for 1974 standards, because these two mutants, they wrestle around and they fight each other over who gets to eat this old slug on the ground. Mm hmm. We had seen giant slugs earlier, so we kind of get a kaiju. None of those slugs are here oh, on the true, island, yeah. but we did get some giant slugs that get torched with American. Well, they're Japanese flamethrowers, not American flamethrowers, as they say on giant monster messages. <laughs> yeah, and I did. I, I again, I just I can't stand it when Jimmy beats me to something. So I found what I was looking for. So All right. uh, Jules tells me that the real designer was Akihiko Iguchi. Oh, okay. Well, well, there, there. We'll keep that noted. Calm down, Jim. I see that finger going for that button right. there. So, uh, none of that. We have time constraints that we need to abide by. Board mandated, and I don't feel like getting shot into space. So, you might want to cool it with the interruptions. Yeah, that is a that's a freaky scene. Now, I'll mention one of the scenes that the that I thought was really effective, and then we'll get into why it was banned because, uh, in large part, because of that scene. I actually thought that the mirror reflex scene where they see the upside down city in the sky, I thought that was actually really effective. And I wish that scene had lasted longer because that was actually a bit freaky. The idea being that yeah. there's a bunch of chemical buildup in the atmosphere and it was reflecting an image of the city from the ground. And so it looked like it was this upside down city in the sky and it was freaky. Combine that with the music that was playing and how it looked like they put a filter on the camera to make it look kind of weirdly dark, like a brownish dark, almost like a yellowish brownish dark. And I thought that was actually very good. Yeah, and it, it makes for one of the most striking publicity stills for the whole movie, too. That's probably one of the better known ones. Yeah, but now let's get to the banning, because this is the second movie I have covered on the podcast that is banned. And let me tell you, it was not easy to get my mitts on a copy to put into the film vault. Here's the thing. And maybe you can shed a little bit of light on this for me, John. I primarily see people talking about that it's banned because of the soft-bodied humans. But I've also heard people talk about a scene earlier that was in New Guinea. So for the second episode in a row, I'm talking about a movie that takes place partly in New Guinea because our previous episode was Gamera versus Barugan. <laughs> Funny how that works. Oh, I didn't know that. <laughs> yeah. 
but the zombie scene. I've heard also contributed to it getting banned, but that doesn't get talked about nearly as much as the soft-bodied humans. Can you shed a little bit of light on that? Yeah, I mean, the soft-bodied humans make more sense because they pertain specifically to Japan and to radiation-scarred survivors from Hiroshima and stuff, whereas the natives, you know, are from New Guinea, but there is a scene where when they go to New Guinea, the local native population there, some of them, due to this radiation cloud over the island, have been turned into cannibals and are kind of zombie-like as well. I don't know. I mean, the no nukes group, I don't know exactly why they would have deemed that offensive because it has nothing to do with radiation survivors. Well, they Um, did say that they went to New Guinea to investigate a radiation cloud that was building up over New Guinea. And the makeup for the zombified natives does seem to include what look like radiation scars. Maybe. I guess I hadn't looked at, I hadn't looked at them that closely. But you're referring to, yeah, the No Nukes group from Osaka. And then there was also the Bomb Sufferers Organizations Council. And they went to, and this is all coming from your book, by the way, your magazine, the Karen Board, which is essentially the Japanese MPA, to get the screenings of the movie stopped. There was actually like a precursor to this, too, back in the days of Ultra 7 in 1967 or 68. Yeah, similar type of thing where they had aliens based off of radiation survivors. So I believe it's episode 12 of Ultra yes. 7. You mm-hmm. cannot find in Japan because of that. Yeah, even the Mill Creek release doesn't have it. But the nice thing is, is that they actually just skip over the number. So they don't do a weird thing where what was actually 13, they make episode 12. They just skip over it and keep the number incorrect, which okay. was really nice of them. But yeah, it's a similar thing. It's a very sensitive subject. And previously, I did an episode on Frankenstein Conquers the World where I talked about these survivors. They're called the Hibakusha. And there's a lot of, I guess you say, activist groups that are looking out for their interests. And when they see something like this, they jump at it. This is not the first time this has happened. Matongo almost got banned because of this, because one of the half-formed mushroom men, they thought looked a little too close for comfort, but they weren't able to get anything done to that movie. This one, they succeeded, which, like I said at the beginning, is astonishing because this was Toho's biggest hit of 1974. Yeah, and I mean, it's less surprising with movies like Half Human, you know, or Abominable Snowman, which is one of Toho's other band films, which wasn't actually a huge, huge hit like Prophecies of Nostradamus was, again, which was, I think, either the number one top domestic Japanese film of 74. If it wasn't number one, it was number two or something like that. But it, I mean, hugely successful film. Yeah, it's just ironic. The only, and I said this in the Half Human episode, the only thing in the United States for my American listeners that I can equivocate this to would be Song of the South with Disney, where it's a self-imposed ban where they just will not allow the movie to be screened or released anymore. And if I remember right, the last time the uncut version of this movie was ever shown was, I believe, in 1980 was what you said, as part of a a holiday special or a holiday screening on TV? Yeah, that's all I could find on that. And what makes this even more ironic is there's a few famous Toho actors in this, like Akihiko Harada and Koizumi. They make cameos in this. But we also get a cameo from Takashi Shimura, and it's tragic that this movie's been banned because this was his last tokusatsu role for Toho. Yeah. So for anybody out there who loves Takashi Shimura, there's one movie you can't get a hold of. But not only was all this hullabaloo about the movie, 
as you pointed out, well, now we'll get into this because you know I'm deferring to you on this. This almost, much like with Subversion of Japan, it almost became something of a franchise because there was almost a sequel, which I'm guessing probably got shut down because the movie got banned, <laughs> and there was almost a TV show. Yeah, so Submersion of Japan, just to talk about the TV show first, uh, Submersion, they knew they were going to do a TV series alongside the film, and so they actually filmed part of the TV series special effects when they filmed the movie's effects and kind of killed two birds with one stone at certain times. And so that was going to be the plan with Prophecies of Nostradamus. They were going to do a TV equivalent, which would kind of be like a parallel telling of the movie. And I read somewhere that they had TV cameras set up on the effects stage to also capture that same footage for television screens. I don't know how far into that they canceled it, but I do know I read that Ashiro Honda and John Fukuda were going to direct episodes of the series. I know, that's really exciting. Yeah. They had to decide to cancel it, I would think, before the controversy. So I, I would guess it got canceled for other reasons. And same with the sequel. That's a weird thing. They pitched that sequel after the controversy, because again, right upon the release was when the controversy happened. But the sequel pitch they came up with was it was called Prophecies of Nostradamus 2, Fear of the Great Devil, or kind of an alternate translation might be King of Terror from the Sky. Ah, yes. And their idea was they were going to make the main character the author of the book, which was Sutomo Bengoto, <laughs> and he was going to go... Uh, far into the east probably in the himalayas where these spirit mediums contact the ghost of nostradamus and he tells them about some of his predictions to come and then the world is consumed in world war three and it's it's this big huge conflict and basically uh every country participates except for japan and then this ufo uh, shows up over tokyo and they call that the king of terror except for this quote-unquote king of terror actually turns out to kind of be the good guy and it observes that Japan was the only peaceful nation, so the UFO somehow abducts all of Japan and takes Japan into space to settle on a new planet, and the world destroys itself. And that was oh going to be. Oh my gosh! Yeah, that's so. Zany. There wouldn't have been. Yeah, it wouldn't have been a Nostradamus Part Three with that ending, but okay. that sounds very Japanese. I have. Yeah. To say. <laughs> so, John, while we're on this subject. I made the argument in the half-human episode that I really honestly thought that half-humans should be allowed out of the vault and let other people see it and make their own judgment calls. Now, I could be speaking as the dirty, dirty American here because by the logic that Toho was using, there are a lot of classic American westerns that should be locked up forever and never see because of how you want to interpret their handling of Native Americans. So I admit that. But we don't lock those up. We look at them as relics of a previous time and we engage with those. I will admit it's a little bit dicier for me when it comes to prophecies of Nostradamus. I'm still erring on the side of let the movie be released so people can make their own decisions and make up their own minds about it, especially since the farther away that we get from the nuclear bombings, I don't want this to sound insensitive, but there are fewer and fewer of those survivors around so I don't know how relevant the controversy is anymore. What are your thoughts on it? Yeah, well, you know, suppressing history is always a double-edged sword because you say you want to suppress something to spare people's feelings, but you'll also make them forget at a certain point that this tragedy ever happened because you don't ever talk about it. And so, like, I feel like with Nostradamus, at least, you can make the argument that Bano wanted to make, you know, an anti-war film or an anti nuclear holocaust film so rather than exploitation 
those end scenes were supposed to be chilling to the kids that watch the movie and hopefully those kids who would grow up and become politicians or officials in the military you know would make an impression on them and they would be very cautious about using nuclear weapons and be cautious about the environment so you know bano had good intentions i would say in that he was crafting a cautionary tale and I, I I agree with you. I think it's been such a long time now that I, I don't think that they would get in trouble for releasing it. And again, you know, you just kind of accept that these films came from a different era. You yes. know, that's just part of history. You know, I mean, you can't erase history. You can critique history and say this or that was wrong, but you can't erase it. No, you can't. The thing that it's also ironic about this is that, I mean, that scene with the soft-bodied humans is maybe, what, 30 seconds? It's a two-hour movie, and the entirety of it is being banned for 30 seconds. Mm -hmm. It's a little bit ironic. I mean, if you want to include the radiation zombies from earlier, it might be a couple of minutes out of the two hours. And yeah, I agree with you. I do think that Bano's intention was to do a cautionary tale, perhaps a little bit shocking, but a cautionary tale nonetheless. And I think it was misinterpreted, unfortunately. And now is fading into obscurity, unfortunately. And I mean, I'll be the first person to say I don't think this is nearly as good of a movie as Subversion of Japan. But I do think it's a movie that should be allowed to be viewed at the very least. Yeah, I agree. And just so, you know, some listeners might be really adverse to getting bootlegs and stuff, which I'm not. I mean, if a studio will not release their film on home video in the U.S. where you can get it legitimately, I have no problem getting bootleg because to me that's kind of their fault for not trying to get it out there but prophecies of nostradamus if you are if you do have an aversion to bootlegs and you don't like those if you get on ebay and look really hard you can find a vhs tape mm-hmm. of uh, last days of planet of earth which is a legal legitimate release of the film which toho has never tried to block it's just the american tv cut of the movie we've been talking about and it's quite different but if you if you want to see it uh, actually i think well Prophecies of Nostradamus might actually be on archive.org right now if you just poke around online. You can find it. If you look hard enough, you can find it. So I do recommend it. At the very least, watch it as a curiosity, if nothing else. Well, John, there's some other things that I could say about this movie, but as I mentioned earlier with Jimmy, we're on a board-mandated time crunch, so we got to wrap things up, and I'll just have to pass along some notes to Jimmy for his follow-up blog. So, we now need to get to a very important segment. (sighs) Fine, Jimmy. Fine. Even though I'd rather not. Let's get the uh, Monster Island Board of Directors, or MIBOD, announcements out of the way for the week. So, what is it this time? We would like to thank our fantastic legal team, spearheaded by Raymond Martin. Helping bring Godzilla vs. Kong to the world sooner was a tricky but very wise move. Contract negotiations with the two Titans were tougher than anticipated. Yeah, tell me about it. Both Godzilla and Kong have big egos and even bigger personal attorneys. Mm-hmm. Coordinating their rematch is something that even Dana White would be proud of. Now, let them fight. Oh, yay. Oh, there's another one? Of course there's another one. Let's see. Now on to the business of the special premiere that was falsely reported a few months ago. I'm going to cut you off right there, Jimmy. Let's not go there. Well, at the time, it was indeed fake news, 
We are pleased to announce that we will be having a Godzilla vs. Kong special premiere celebration here on Monster Island. Look for more info soon. Well, yeah, that's actually going to be coming up very soon after the release of this episode. I'd say about a month or so. I'm looking forward to it. I have been talking with the board, and they are going to allow me, as more or less the main media outlet here for the island, to go do a little bit of coverage of this special premiere that, like everything else related to Godzilla vs. Kong on this island, whether that be my podcast and otherwise, has had to be rescheduled, oh, I don't know, about five times. I'm just glad that's over with. You know, we had the trailer finally, and it was exciting. And I know you and I talked a little bit about it before we went on the air, John. And uh, I know you liked the trailer a lot as well. Oh, absolutely. I don't really see what any of the gripes are about. I I even like the song. I listen to that at the gym now. (laughs) You know, you're the second person that I've heard say he listens to that at the gym. (laughs) Yeah. Yes, Jimmy, I know you really enjoy that because you have a thing for gangster rap, which is both weird and endearing. <laughs> and now, as I was trying to say, we come to a very important segment of the Monster Island Film Vault, the Patreon shoutouts. Go Damon Noise! Danny Damana, Chris Cook, Bex from Redeemed Otaku. You feel like joining in? No, I, th- I think talking about prophecies of Nostradamus got me too depressed. I, I can't muster it today. <laughs> okay, well then let me finish it out. Eli Harris, Travis Alexander, Michael Hamilton. All right, there we go. Thank you once again, patrons, for all of your generosity. And I want to remind everybody listening to this that you too can join what I am calling MIFV Max or More Awesome Extras. Thank you, Danny, for that name. If you want to join this, all you have to do is go to Patreon. And for as little, as little as $3 a month, you can get perks like this and other things like early access to episodes or bonus blooper audio and all kinds of fun stuff because, yes, I do have to cut a few things after the live broadcast for the podcast version of each episode. So check out the links in the show notes in order to sign up. And by the way, I just want to remind everybody, please send us feedback, whether that be through social media posts or DMs or especially if you email us so that your feedback can be read on a future episode of the show. Listen to the credits to get the contact information. So, John, you want to take a guess at what our next episodes are going to be? Are they more Gamera? Yes, the year of Gamera is continuing. I'm excited. Can you tell I'm excited? I'm definitely excited. No, Jimmy. Totally excited about this. Totally. Anyway, yes. Our next stop in the year of Gamera will be Gamera versus Gauss, which will have a couple of our patrons, Damon Noyes and my friend Michael the Kaiju Groupie Hamilton from Kaiju Weekly and the Kaiju Groupie Podcast. And then, John, we're actually going to be taking a little bit of a break from this series on Toho Classics to start ramping up for Godzilla versus Kong. 
So next month, right before the movie comes out, I'm going to have two very special guests to talk about Godzilla King of the Monsters from 2019. Oh, can you say who they are? Oh, yes. I'm very excited about this. Very excited about this. I will be joined by the Omni Viewer. Are you familiar with Omni Viewer on YouTube? I know the name. That name sounds familiar. Yeah, his real name. I hope he doesn't mind me saying this. His real name is Ryan. <laughs> but yes, the Omni Viewer. And then also, and I need to find out what his real name is, but I will be joined by the host of Up From The Depths. Have you ever seen that YouTube channel? Oh, yeah. I'm familiar with that. Oh, yeah. So both of them will be coming on. And I can promise in advance that even though it was popular to hate on this movie for a while, this is going to be a very positive episode about this movie. Cool, because I actually, I always maintain that if we got a longer director's cut, it would be a lot better, in my opinion. So what you're saying is, hashtag release the Dogerty cut? <laughs> yeah, yeah, because I think they're actually good characters. They just needed more time to breathe. And I think, you know, a director's cut could possibly do that. And hey, I'd watch a three-hour Godzilla film, but I'm weird. All right, and now we come to yet another very important segment on this show. No episode of MIFV would be complete without shameless self-promotion. Lay it on us, John. What do you got going on right now? Where can people find you? Well, it's very fortuitous because my shameless self-promotion right now ties into this episode because my two newest releases, which you can find on Amazon pretty easy, both have to do with prophecies of Nostradamus. So, you know, Nate kept referring to my magazine all episode. It's called The Lost Films Fanzine Presents Movie Milestones. So you could just type in Movie Milestones for short, but it's Movie Milestones issue number three celebrates all of the Japanese panic movies or disaster films of the 1970s. So it's got Submersion of Japan, Prophecies of Nostradamus, it's got Bullet Train, Deathquake, just all of them are in there, 120 pages, so nice little magazine there. And then I also have a new book out, and it's got a really long title, it's called The Big Book of Japanese Giant Monster Movies, The Lost Cuts, Editing Japanese Monsters, Volume 1, U.S. Edits, 1956 through 2000, so you could potentially just type in Editing (laughs) Japanese Monsters. That is a ridiculously long title. Yeah. <laughs> oh, oh, man. I'll put links to all of those in the show notes so everyone can go buy your stuff. Trust me, yeah. I know all about doing stuff like this. I haven't brought it up on the podcast yet, which is a little astonishing, but I, too, have a new book out right now. It's a sword and sorcery novella that I co-wrote with Nick Hayden, who's a past guest of on the show, and our friend Aaron Brosman. It's called Zorzum and the God Who Devours. All I'll say about it right now is that it's about a barbarian cooler than Conan. Mic drop. Not literally, but you know what I mean. (laughs) (laughs) All right. So with that, Jimmy, cue credits. Thank you for listening to the Monster Island Film Vault, a podcast produced and hosted by Nate Marchand. If you enjoy the show and want to join the discussion, we'd love to hear from you. So email us at feedback at monsterislandfilmvault.com. Your message could be read on a future episode of the show. Our website is monsterislandfilmvault.com. Follow us on Facebook and Instagram at Monster Island Film Vault and on Twitter, where our handle is at TheMonsterIsla1. You can also follow Jimmy from NASA on Twitter at NASA Jimmy and the Monster Island Board of Directors at Monster Isla BOD. I have fulfilled my contractual obligations! And be sure to subscribe to us on YouTube, Spotify, and Twitch. The podcast logo was created by Tyler Souls from TylerDrawsComics.com. 
Our theme song is Wanderer on the Offensive, live edit by B33J, Sarax, Juan Madrano, and Nonsensical Lexus, which is a remix of Counterattack, Battle with the Colossus, and The Open Way, Battle with the Colossus by Koatani from the video game Shadow of the Colossus. All film and audio clips belong to the respective copyright holders, and no infringement is intended or implied. Please rate and review us on Apple Podcasts and or Podchaser to spread the word about the show. You can also support us by joining MIFV Max on Patreon. The Monster Island Film Vault is a Moonlighting Ninjas Media production. Sayonara!